today on Geekdemian Powers. Our, our view of reality, our perception of reality is through our senses. And so what I see and smell and hear and taste and feel uh, is how I think the world is happening. That's how I think reality is happening. And so if I allow governments or technology to replace those senses, I'm literally opting into volunteering my perception of reality to be created by somebody else. You are listening to Geekdom Empowers, the podcast about people empowered through their geekiness. Welcome back. My name is Guy Hasson, and you are listening to Geekdom Empowers. Geekdom Empowers is the podcast that highlights creators and fans in the geek world who do not often get to be highlighted. It's these people, it is us, who make up almost all of the geek world by talking to each person, by hearing their story. Geekdom Empowers creates a huge, giant, world-sized quilt of all the geeks all around the world. Each person is a story, and together we are one story, one huge Geekverse quilt. Today's guest is animator and creator Corey Kerr. He will walk us through his journey, his origin story, and he has his own personal story, his own personal path, of course, and I don't want to take anything away, no spoilers, from you discovering whatever you discover as you listen to us talking about his art and his life. So enjoy that. Let's begin. Can you tell me a little bit about your origin story? Well, I mean, I was, I was always interested in, uh, I was always interested in all kinds of different storytelling. Um, I think uh, as a kid, my first, uh, my first animated character that I spoke out loud was Popeye, but uh, mm-hmm. my, my dad often jokes about me running around as a three or four year old. Uh, and I would, I would bundle up a blanket in my arm, like a white blanket. And I'd say, I put a web on it and I'd throw it out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, the, the X-Men, the X-Men and Batman animated series uh, cartoons were pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once I, I lived in a very small town and so I didn't really have access to comics or anything except for about 30 miles down the road. Um, there was a comic shop and I'd try to get there as much as I could, but it was a, it was also a head shop. So they'd sell, I think they were selling comics as a front and then they, they were really selling, you mean, a yeah, sex shop, like you mean like a, like a head shop is, is a shop uh, in the nineties where they would, they'd sell like drugs. Oh, okay. and, and so, so they'd sell like they'd sell like this was legal, but they'd sell all kinds of marijuana paraphernalia and everything. And I had no idea what what any of that was. I just sure. thought it was weird looking tobacco pipes and stuff. In the back, they had comics, and hmm. so I'd, I'd go I'd go to that store and buy buy a couple of comics and things here and there. And um, and then I kind of uh I kind of fell away from that for for a while. Um you know, moved, moved out of the country for a bit and lived in Scotland for a couple of years and came back and went to college. And, um, and I got back into, I got back into it, um, probably my early thirties. Um, I decided that I wanted to learn how to draw. And so when I was 32, I started a web comic, um, just, just by way of, uh, teaching myself how to draw. So, uh-huh. cause that makes you unique, uh, for all the, like, where, 
I don't know what episode we are, 70 something. Uh, yeah. And, and of all, like, I don't just interview artists, but when I talk to artists, all the origin stories, I couldn't stop, you know, doodling when I was young and it just never stopped. And you started at age 30 something. How yeah, I mean, I had, it's, it's a bit of, it's, yeah, I mean, when I was a kid, uh, you know, I drew like everybody draws, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I might've been a little bit more, more talented than a lot of the people in kindergarten or whatever. And so I kind of became known as an artist. And, uh, and I remember showing a high school teacher, I was about six. And I remember showing the high school art teacher who I bumped into because it's a small town. So you know who everybody is. And I had, I had just, I had just found this book from my mom uh, who was an artist in college and it was, it, it had to be about three inches thick. And it was, it was a how to do cartooning book, you know? And I showed him and I was so excited. I said, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go through this whole book. And he looked at it and said, now nah, that book's not good enough. And I thought that's the biggest book I've ever seen. If that book isn't good enough, I don't think I can do this. And, uh, and then I remember a little bit later, I saved up all my money and I bought a sketchbook and I was really excited. Um, to fill this sketchbook and I showed, I showed somebody and they said, Oh, that's a really nice book. You better, you better draw really good stuff in there. And it was so terrifying to make a mistake in a sketchbook that I, I I never put a line down in that sketchbook. So it's, it was blank. So I had a couple experiences really early on where people kind of discouraged me from doing it. And I kind of got into that like toxic perfection Mm -hmm. mentality. And I think my whole career, I kind of danced around illustration um by the time i by the time i started taking drawing seriously when i was when i was 32 uh i had already been a cinematographer and a video editor and a, and a graphic designer professionally and a, and a photographer and and so um i was always doing something creative in the marketing field and things like that. but i was doing it for other people um but a lot of people a lot of people see my stuff. And they're like, how did you get to this point? If you didn't draw your whole life, you know, and it, and I was always doing something with composition, you know, or with visual storytelling or, or something along those lines. It was just, uh, it just wasn't the traditional route of like, you know, the kid who survived. Cause I think, I think everybody's an artist and I think the public school system beats that out of us. I, you know, I think we spend a decade telling kids that, you know, the, the really important things, you know, are everything but creativity and art. And, uh, and we just, you know, kind of slowly teach people to be automatons rather than uh, to be creative individuals. Because I think everybody's creative in their own way. Um, yeah, but everybody's creative, but there are also people who, who feel were born for this. Like I can see two of my daughters, like, when they start drawing something, that's the whole world. And when yeah. I was a kid, and now, when I start imagining a story, you completely lose me, you know, and I keep thinking about how to create stories, even when I was a kid. And one of my daughters, constantly thinking, she, you know, inventing rules for how to draw as she, you know, without books. Yeah. So everyone's creative, but some people, you can feel are just me, you know. They have it inside yeah. them. Yeah, and I think I think that I think the thing that's inside of them might be the creative outlet. I think that varies. Yeah. But I, but I but I I would be worried to see somebody 
who, who wasn't, and didn't have some spark of creativity in them. Sure. Uh, but yeah, but yeah, you know, whether that comes out in dance or writing or storytelling or, you know, art or animation or whatever, I, I, that, that does vary quite a bit. How did you get over though, the, the crippling uh, fear, like, you had it when you were young. That means it stays with you. You know, you don't just lose it. Yeah. You have to find a way to get over it. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, it was, it was kind of a darker time in my life. My wife had just gone through uh, several years of postpartum depression. Um, and, and as the person trying to be supportive and helping her, I kind of lost like my identity. And so when she got better, you know, I, I realized that I didn't have any opinions on anything. I didn't like or dislike anything. I had just become the guy that was keeping everybody okay, you know? And, um, and so I think I, I think I was in a, I was in a spot where I was ready for, um, you know, a big change and, and something that I could kind of throw myself into. So I think that helped. And then I think professionally, it's really hard to be, you know, a perfectionist and be fearful of making something that doesn't look good when you've spent, you know, years, um, you know, creating. So I, I, I had made, you know, I had made short films and, and a lot of videos for businesses and commercials and a ton of graphic design and a lot of marketing things. And in, and in all of those situations, um, you, you give and receive critique and have to make changes. And so I think by the time I, by the time I pulled the trigger on that, um, you know, I, I had enough professional experience to kind of realize that it's an iterative process. Um, cause, cause I think a really childish view of, of anything, but of art specifically is that it's kind of magic, you know, and that you kind of just, you kind of just do it, you know, um, when in, when in reality, you're going to draw something five times, you know, to, you're going to, you're going to do your thumbnails and then you're going to do your roughs and then you're going to do your pencils and then you're going to do your inks and then you're going to go back and fix some stuff. And, you know, and so that kind of iterative process, I was already very familiar with that. So by that point in time, I had nothing to lose uh, because I was, I was kind of clawing my, clawing my way back into the light from that, from that hole I had dug for myself. And, and so it couldn't have gotten any worse. <laughs> you know? And so, uh, so I don't, I, I think, I think there's some of that. And then I think just having, having an experience with critique and iteration, you know um, yeah, I didn't, I, there was, there was one point in time I did about 60 pages of that web comic. Um, one one page a week. Uh, it was called the mixed and I've, I've tried to, I've tried to destroy it from the internet. So I don't think it is just, <laughs> it's a, uh, it's one of the few things that I've scrubbed just because, uh, just, just because of what, yeah, it was, it was me learning how to draw, but, um, but I did, I did go back and redraw two pages after, after I hit page 60. And then I realized, you know, if I, if, cause I was the second end of the second chapter, I realized if I do this, I'm going to redraw the entire thing and I'll never make anything for the rest of my life. I'll just continue to redraw all these pages you know, in some sort of infinite loop of, of hell, you know? So, um, but then I had to get a, to, to, to get this job that I wanted, I had to get a master's degree. And so something had to give. So I put my, my web comic on pause and I got a master's degree from Savannah college of art and design, um, in, in illustration, 
Um, and, uh, and then when I came back, I, I just kind of moved on from that story. Um, I've actually, re- I have a, I have a script that I rewrote of it that, that I'll probably get to someday, but then I started doing a bunch of other things and taught myself how to, how to animate, uh, pretty, pretty soon after that. And that was, I've been doing that for a bit, about three years now. And that's been pretty fun. So I've, what kind of things done- do you do? Oh, I do weird stuff. Uh, I, all, all of my work kind of centers around, um, kind of warning people about the loss of individuality and humanity. Um, you know, whether that be, you know, through, uh, you know, through loss of empathy or, or through lately it's, I've been focusing on a lot of what technology is doing, um, you know, and, and how, the tech companies are kind of getting us used to um, not connecting with each other face to face in person and, and getting us used to kind of augmented reality or, or trying to replace our senses with other things. And, you know, um, the younger generations, they don't know what like boredom is, um, you know, like when you and I were growing up, there would be large periods of our day where, you know, there was nothing on TV that we were interested in. And there's, you had no other screens. You couldn't just say a phrase into, into the air and and deliver content. I mean, I I mean, right now, my, my three-year-old can, you know, can say Alexa play blah, 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 blah on Spotify. And (laughs) and the house responds with whatever Mm -hmm. he wishes, you know? Uh, And so we grew up where we had to make our own fun and make our own entertainment. And I think that's a really important part of the human condition. So a lot of my work is, is kind of warning against, um, you know, that loss of individuality and loss of humanity. Um, and, and so I, I do stuff that's satirical or, or weird or, uh, or, or something along those lines. I've had a couple, a couple animated shorts that have done kind of the festival circuit that have won a bunch of awards and things. And, and so the, yeah, it's, uh, it's hard to describe. I don't know, whatever, whatever strikes me at the time, whatever combination of news and entertainment and weird late night musings kind of mutate together into, into the next thing I make. I, hmm. Can I say something it, about being bored? Yeah. Like my wife taught me when my kids were born, <clears throat> she said, there's no such thing as being bored. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not, Animals don't get bored. Babies don't get bored. Mm-hmm. When we grow up, we have some kind of expectation. And suddenly, when it's not fulfilled, we're bored. But it's not, it's not actually a thing. You don't, people are not naturally bored. So, for example, if someone sits in front of a television for six hours straight and television ends, with kids especially, the second the television ends, they're bored because they forgot there's anything else they could do. Uh, but they hadn't had time to be bored. It was three seconds ago. Yeah. Uh, that is, that, like, what you say is true. It's, and what she says is true. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's, and, it's and something what, to be taught. Yeah. And what we decide, what we, what we call boredom um, is, is this, is this uncomfortable state of mind. And so the, the neurologists and the psychologists and everybody that have kind of studied this thing, there, there is a, there is a framework or a state of mind, um, or, or what they call a, um, a mode, a, a modality of thinking 
called the default mode network. Mm-hmm. And the default mode network is, um, is, is restful wakefulness. Or in other words, it's when, it's when your mind wanders. It's when you daydream. It's when, you, it's when you're not being programmed by something else. They, they call it unprogrammed time. So there's programs time. Like as a, a filmmaker could decide when the audience is going to feel sad when they're going to feel happy, when they're going to laugh, when they're going to cry, you know, you're being programmed as you watch that. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, Cause I, I really enjoy film and I enjoy books and authors and writers and everybody else does the same thing. But, but if a hundred percent of your time is programmed time, I don't know why you exist as an individual, you know, like what, what do you, what do you do other than consume? Um, and so this, this idea of unprogrammed time uh, we used to have it all the time. And neurologists say, that a, that a minimum of 30 minutes every day of unprogrammed time is, is really healthy. Um, and, but it's massively uncomfortable during that transition time from program time to unprogrammed time. And that, that transition time is when we think I'm bored. And what actually happens, there is that moment of boredom and your brain hates it so much that it actually goes into overdrive. And your brainwave activities during a state of restful wakefulness where you're not being entertained uh, are, are way higher and way more engaged than when you're watching television or listening to a book or something like that. Um, your mind goes and finds, and, and the neurologists have a phrase that they say, an idle mind seeks a toy. And so as soon as your brain says, I'm bored, nothing's going on, it, it immediately starts solving problems. And, and during that state, they, they say that it increases your empathy it increases your creativity. It increases your long-term memory. Um, and it increases, oh, there's something else that I'm forgetting, but there's four, there's, oh, your moral compass. And so, so it's a really important part of life. And, and I, and I mean, if you think about generations of people worldwide being raised in a situation where their moral compass is diminished, their ability to empathize with other people is diminished their creativity is diminished, their long-term memory is diminished, then you have whole populations of people running around, not making or saying anything, only living kind of with a goldfish memory of what's going on right now and what's entertaining me right now that don't care about other people. It's terrifying. So I I used to uh, tell my... uh, tell my daughters when, uh, like a few years ago, if you're able to switch from watching television to, to being able to play a game quickly without getting completely stressed out about it, you could watch more television. Like the, it's, there's a place where you get too hooked, too hooked and the way to know you're hooked on it is that you're unable to stop. Yeah. If you're able to stop, you can watch more television. Like, do it, sure. stop, you watch television. But yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so I love TV and I love movies and I love video games and I love comics and I love all that stuff. But, uh, but I've also studied enough of it and I've read and watched enough sci-fi and, and dystopian futures to be concerned about it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so a lot of, a lot of what I make, a lot of what I produce in my art is, uh, is kind of a little bit of a, you know, a warning against that, or at least, at least I hope people see it and think something that they hadn't thought before. And I, I try not to give answers, but I like to raise questions about things and, and let people 
know, some sometimes because they've 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 done a they've done studies. Zuboff wrote a book called Surveillance Capitalism about about the uh, big five tech companies that are um, kind of ruling the world right now, and uh, and she identifies a pattern where. Um, you know, if nobody's paying attention to it, then, then these, these things that would normally be very horrific, uh, become normalized and become used to them. And, and so a lot of what I'm trying to do is, and and they've done studies that when they show people like this, this is what's happening. These, these are the things that these companies know about you. This is the stuff that they're tracking. This is, this is how you felt about something two years ago before they started showing you all these things. People Mm -hmm. don't like it. And they actively choose to to do things about it, but only if they're made aware of it. And so a lot of what I a lot of what I want to do is introduce the idea, you know, that hey, maybe maybe this isn't something that or maybe this is something that you should be aware of. But I don't want to I don't want to go out and give people the answers because I don't I don't know if I know the answers. I don't know if anybody does. But I know that being aware of things is better than having things normalized when you're not aware. The point of art is to open up uh, ideas rather than give solutions. And it's to, to expose, to tell truths, to tell emotional truths. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you said, you also said uh, you did cinematography. Do you mean the animation or do you mean uh, something else? Uh, I, early on in my career, I did a lot of, uh, I did a lot of boring videos, business to business videos. And, mm. and I would try to make them as interesting as possible. Um, and so I studied a lot of filmmaking techniques and things like that while I was doing it. But at the same time, I would, I would be doing a, a training video on how to defuel an aircraft on an aircraft carrier, you know, but I would try to shoot it really well, <laughs> you know, so it's kind of this, uh, the content was horrifically boring, but the way that I stayed engaged with it was to try to make it beautiful, even though it was, you know, instructions on how to use a product or whatever. And I don't know that anybody would look at it and say that's beautiful, but somebody who knows what they're talking about, hopefully would look at it and say, well, at least it's shot well, you know? <laughs> so, so there's a little bit of that at the beginning. And then because of that later on, now that I'm making animated short films, everything that I kind of learned in my photography and, 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 you know, business films uh, kind of comes full circle and I can, it's one of the quivers, one of the arrows I've got in my quiver to kind of, kind of use. So. How do you get that? How do you get your animations out to people? Like, how do people know about that? Um, a, a couple of ways. So I am very open about my my process. I, I probably, due to what we were talking about before, um, I've noticed that people are scared to show the, you know, the messy ugliness of creation. Um, they, they only want to show the finished shiny product at the end where, you know, it just kind of looks like it just appeared out of, out of thin air. And so what I do instead is um, I often will show, you know, time-lapse videos or I will live stream while I'm creating these things. And so my, my YouTube channel and, and Twitter and, and Instagram are full of just me showing, you know, Hey, I rigged a character. Look, it looked weird at the beginning and check it out. Um, and then, and then at the end, I'll, I'll release those films on, on, um, Instagram, YouTube, Vimeo, um, and the ones that are bigger projects, I'll, I'll kind of, I'll kind of have, I'll enter them into festivals. And so, um, I've, I've had films play, um, 
I'm trying to think. Most of the continents, but I, but I've had films play in 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 London and Rome and um, several places in Africa and and uh, uh, there was one film that was pretty popular in the Eastern Bloc, um, a couple couple of the Scandinavian countries, and then and then in Paris and uh, Seattle and L.A. and you know New York and kind of all over, um, and they're little festivals, so you know little you know dozens of people all over the world have, have kind of watched them in these, in these, in these festivals. And I've, I've won a couple of awards in that, in those situations. And um, yeah, but for the most part, um, I am critical of the machine that I'm using to get the word out. And I think the algorithms um, kind of punish that. So I remember, I, yeah, I, I, I think I was shadow banned on, instagram uh because i i had a dip in my if you look at my analytics i was doing not great but okay numbers and then i did a a parody um where i called zuckerberg a um a, a dead-eyed dead-eyed cyborg and uh and immediately that that particular post tanked mm-hmm. in the next couple months barely anybody saw anything that i did so that that happens a bit i also did a um during the most recent election i did a parody of uh of the electoral college um by saying that we should replace all voting with uh every u.s citizen gets a nanobot and we just we just get rid of congress and we just put a big battle dome in there and whoever's nanobot wins gets to flip a coin that says yes or no, and that's how we decide on legislation. So it was obvious satire. Sure, the um, way Greeks did democracy, same thing. Yeah, you know, I, I don't, I don't actually know that it would be any more or less efficient than what we've got now. But, um, but, uh, <laughs> but anyway, it was. I thought it was funny, and um, that 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 got me shadow banned for a bit too. They even sent me a note no. and said I had to, uh, I had to verify find my account to make sure that I wasn't, uh, you know, some sort of foreign agent trying to, you know, I was like, did you watch it? It's a cartoon with robots fighting each other instead of congressmen. I, you know, it's obviously not, I'm not trying to subvert an election. I'm trying to poke fun at gerrymandering and, Uh but it was so anyway, so the irony of the irony of my message and the delivery of my message you know, massively conflicting is, uh, is never lost on me. So. Yeah. You, you need to kind of clock walk orange people to, to watch. The- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, I try to, I try to get stuff out there. Um, and, you know, I think I, I've got, I've got a, some buddies uh, that I, that I do a lot on YouTube with you. You've had quite a few of them on the show. Um, you know, Scott Circland and Joshua Kemble mm-hmm. and uh, Gary and Jim and a lot of those guys. And, and so, um, and, you know, Jim, uh, Jim Lujan and I collaborated on a, on an animation a little while ago. Mm-hmm. And the, and the, the animation is funny because it's Jim Lujan, right? He wrote it and, and, and drew it. Um, but, but my favorite part about that was that we live streamed every meeting that we had. And so there was no, um, there was nothing secret. Uh, any any decision that we made, any conversation that we had, 
uh, was live streamed and, and those videos are still available called breaking the chains. Uh, there's just a series of us meeting a couple times a week and, and arguing about how we're going to make this thing. <laughs> and it was pretty funny because our, because our, our styles are drastically different and our, um, the way we go about animation is drastically different. Um, and so that was, that was interesting, but that kind of goes along with this kind of radical transparency that I try to do with stuff where I just, I just, I want people to see that it's okay to screw stuff up before it's done, you know? Um, and, and so seeing, I, I did one a hundred days of animation, right? Right. For hundred days straight, I wanted to learn how to animate in after effects and I didn't know how. And so I would just make a video every day about, you know, here's what I did. And there are quite a few of those where, you know, I'm just really frustrated because I'm like, I broke it again. You know, I, I'm trying to rig this character and it's like the third day in the row that I tried to rig it and failed miserably, or I would get close and then something would happen and the whole model would fall apart. Um, and, uh, and I, I'd like to think that I'm not vain enough that I'll ever take those down. Cause I want to, I want people to be able to see like, cause people are surprised that I was able to, you know, in, in a couple months, learn how to use a fairly complicated program. And it's like, well, you can watch me do it. It, it really is just sticking with it through the parts where you sucked at it and screwed it up <clears throat> over and over and over again. And, and then at the end of that, I, I now teach that on a, on a, on a university level with no training. And it's only because, you know, I screwed it up so many times that I kind of know a lot of the answers. And so students will ask, you know, what, what, do, what do you do with this? And I've broken that thing four times already. And mm -hmm. so I have a video on how I fixed it eventually, you know, and so I'll go, well, you know, ignore these four videos where I screwed it up a bunch of times. Cause you've already done that, but here's, here's what I figured out. It's interesting. I, okay. I think I'm trying to imagine how to do that as a writer, for example. Like you can't as a writer that you can show you, you know the the, the paragraph was first this, then this, then this. But I I do think it's boring for people. But mainly, you know, the spoilers in the story. You know, yeah, where you put the surprises. You know, the mystery. Maybe you, you gave that's this is too much of a clue. You can't do that. Uh, it's really, I find that people are not really interested in watching a story come around just after something is famous. They want to know how you came up with the name Dumbledore, for example. Right. You know. Yeah. Yeah. When people, when people love something, they want to know, they want to know tidbits, you know, they mm -hmm. want to know uh, little extras and things. Uh, but, um, but I wonder, I wonder if you could do that. I mean, I find it fascinating to talk to people about stories, um, even in the middle, you know, and there's a lot of times where, you know, Josh and I, or Jim and I will get on and, and I'll say, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure this out. And I have a huge problem with this part of the story. I'm trying to get from here to here, you know, and I know that I want to end here and I know that I want to start here, but, but I've got an issue with how I get everybody to understand this part of the story or how this character comes to this point. And so like workshopping that I think is, I think is really valuable. And I wonder uh, if writers could do that and then just 
release those videos after the fact or, or, you know, do that about, you know, something, but leave the end. Cause there's, there's many times where I, you know, I don't give away the end, but I can still, I can still show the process of where I'm leading to. And what I find with that is on a storytelling aspect is people become very interested almost more so than if they just engaged with the final product because they see the struggle on how to create it. Um, and so, so that's pretty interesting. Like I, I saw a few months ago, an early version of Woody and toy story, and he was really jealous and mean. And, yeah. and the, yeah, the initial version of the character was going to be kind of this kind of mean guy who kind of like tried to edge out, you know, buzz and try to bully him a little bit and tell him, you know, and it didn't work for a number of reasons, but it was, it would have been very interesting to see that. And then to see those discussions happen. And then at the, you know, to have them come to, no, he should be, he should be nice and empathetic, but, but we should see his fears, you know, which is kind of where that character ended up. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I think when you're creating something visual, um, you know, there's upsides and downsides, but one of the upsides is, you know, our, our minds process visuals significantly faster than we process, you know, words or audio or, or the written word. And, and so people can look at it you can, I can show you two things and you can see really quickly within, within half a second, you know, that there's progress from one thing to the other thing, you know, there's a difference. Mm-hmm. But but you would have to read those paragraphs, listen to somebody describe, you know, the struggle. So I think there's there's a little bit of lag time, a little bit more effort or investment, you know, that would go into something that isn't, you know, innately visual. Yeah, but, that's uh, a good point. I'm yeah. thinking, yeah, why is it's really good advice. I'm, I I wasn't there to get advice, but uh, <laughs> it is. I can I can I remember when. There were like 20 years ago, and you know, sometimes there were writer workshops. And you know, you'd ask, I was stuck on an idea, you really don't ask for advice, but I need to do this, this, and that. And I asked other writers, and that's an interesting meeting to, to record. Um, no answer was good enough at the time, and it took a few months to find it. But later on, you know, people who were there said, Oh, that's a good solution uh, to how you did that. Yeah, uh, you can do that today by, like, if you're walking alone, by saying, you know, by making yourself into splitting yourself into we should do this, we should do this, we should do this, into many voices. Anyway, let's get back to you. Thank you. I appreciate that. that inspired me to do something like that. Good. Uh, so, what is it like to walk with Jim? Oh, Jim's fun. Um, he's he's he is one of the most like confident creators uh, I've ever met in that he, he thinks he knows exactly where he wants the story to go and just acts like it's a foregone conclusion. Um, and, and it's usually, it's usually one major joke or gag or something that um, that isn't a traditional joke. It's more like a Monty Python thing where, you know, in Monty Python, there was never a punchline. Um, they would just do something ridiculous and then it would get more and more ridiculous and it never went anywhere. And then they would just kind of move on to the next thing. And now for um, something completely different. Yeah, yeah exactly. And uh, 
and it was interesting with Jim because he said, you know, he's I, I, I can I'll say this, but yeah, go go watch go watch it. But he um, the the initial kind of gag was this guy gets in a fight in a bar, and and uh, and he's this little guy who beats the crap out of this big guy, and everybody's super impressed with them. And then he gets in a really crappy car and he tries to start it and it doesn't really start. And eventually it starts and it kind of rattles away. And all the girls that were really impressed are kind of like, Oh, um, that was, that was what it was. And I don't even know. I don't even know if Jim was aware of this change, but he was at the park and saw this vehicle that was like a, it was like a Lexus that had been turned into a rally car. Um, and so he went up and started talking to the owner and asked her if it was okay if he could include it in the in the cartoon um and it's a cool looking car and it's weird because it's like a luxury vehicle that's been turned into like this off-road rally car um but the entire the entire payoff of the whole of the whole thing changed and yet he never lost any confidence in it it was just the whole time it was like yeah this is what we're doing this is what we're doing and then it changed and he was still going yeah this is what's happening this is what's going on um so yeah, it was good. And I mean, I have kind of a much more um, labor intensive animation process than he does. And, uh, and our styles of illustration are quite different. And so when, when he does something, he can, he can produce those films really quickly. And I think, I think for him, it was like, oh man, this is taking forever because I'm in there doing every, you know, every little thing that I can. And he, and I would, since he was drawing all the assets, you know, I would say, no, I need, I need the eyelid on a different layer. I need the iris on a different layer. I need the pupil on the different layer. I need the eyebrows on a different layer because I'm going to be able to go in there and have him like cock his eyebrow and then squint, you know, and, and Jim was used to just drawing the face, drawing a couple mouths, you know, that would say different vowels. And then it was done, you know, and, uh, and I was, I was trying to explain to him, no, like your cornea bulges outward. And so when you look, you know, your eyelid actually wraps around, you know, the, the, the bulging portion of that. It's not a perfect sphere, you know, and, and he's, he's probably just losing it going, what have I gotten myself into here? But uh, he told me afterwards, he said, yeah, whenever you went down one of those rabbit holes, I just hope she'd come back eventually and just let you do your thing. <laughs> so, but yeah, it was interesting. I think, I think it was, uh, I think it was both eye-opening, uh, fun, and and frustrating for both of us because we really like each other, and we are extremely different in our process. And so it was kind of just this fun experiment to you know constantly be like, well, no, let's not do it like that. Let's do it like this, and we'd argue over which one would be. The best way of doing it. it it came out pretty good i like i like what we made i specifically asked him in his episode because i was really uh impressed by that uh, and also you know i wanted to figure out what that was about his confidence like about his certainty that it has to be a certain way and what happens you know and the freedom he feels to change it but it still feels the same it still feels like the thing it should be like we talked about that in his episode it's uh, Nice to hear the, yeah. the other side of that. Yeah, he will. Uh, he has he has folders on his on his computer full of these characters that he's designed, 
and uh, and he has backstories for all of them. And so he'll have a crowd. He'll have a crowd scene in every in every film he does. Every film he does will have at least one scene just where there's at least twenty to fifty people in that in that scene. And so we did one shot where it was full of it was full of uh, it was this big tracking shot, dolly shot, where we're going sideways across this bar, so I could get a little parallax in there. And so there's dozens of people, and he gives me he gives me all these characters, and I. I wish I wish I could remember any of them, but the the file name for each one of them, it wasn't just like person one through seventeen. It was like the file name was descriptive of you know their life, <laughs> you know? and so it was really funny because he's got all these folders and he's you know he's got this guy and he's like guy who used to live in Tucson. That's you know dot psd, you know or whatever. And, and and so you ask him like, what's this guy's story? Oh, I like to think that he. You know, did this and that and the other thing and so i would take his characters and i would i would kind of embellish on that so there's one guy in the background of of one shot um and i just decided that he was like a recovering uh heroin addict and so so i just animated him kind of constantly kind of kind of twitching never stopped moving and his eye his eye would just kind of vibrate you know and jim was like oh that's the best thing ever he totally would be into heroin you know so so yeah, it's it it was it was a fun process, but yeah, very very confident in his in his work and and uh, yeah, he never seems to struggle with the story, whereas I seem to like, you know, I'll have some visuals come to me and then I I've, I've got to like, you know, just pull the story kicking and screaming from the from the depths and and try to force it into the into the thing. I, I seem to struggle a lot more with. Uh, with the story start aspect. with the visual like what where do you start you start the visual with the thing you want to say and then try to figure out how to tell that story or yeah so it, it happens either way uh usually it doesn't happen with a story but usually it'll happen with you know i want to like right now I'm, i'm trying to think of a way to um to mock blockchain stuff and and so i've got a bunch of doing a bunch of research and I've got a bunch of like phrases that are used in describing cryptocurrency and NFTs and some of those things. And, um, and some of them are really funny. And, and so there's probably something to, you know, a sock puppet account, which is, which is a term that you would use in, in that sphere or something, um, you know, and, and so I, I've got this vague concept of, kind of the tulip bulb speculative craze and sock puppets. And so I've got this idea that kind of stemmed from just wanting to make fun of kind of that aspect. I have an idea for the you. The other thing is. If you want. Yeah. I have an idea for you. Sure. NFT babies. Yeah. Uh, I know. I've been trying to uh, think you have to create a short story about that. NFT babies, because oh. eventually people are going to turn their babies into NFTs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like at some point that's going to happen. Like you invest oh, in yeah. a baby by putting on an NFT. And then if the baby makes money, you make money too. Like I love it. Well, and, and then you could mix that. You could mix that with like uh, CRISPR, you know, the, the DNA gene oh. therapy. Yeah. So you could take, you could take CRISPR and NFTs and, you know, in the womb, you could, you know, you could say, Hey, we're going to, you know, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna decide that it's blonde hair, blue eyes, boy, 
but we're going to leave the rest of these variables up to chance. And so you could get a really rare baby or you could get a, you know, a really common baby, but by the NFT and we'll see when it's born. Yeah. There could be some, there could be some pretty funny stuff. Yeah. Do you remember so the time when you could, when you could patent genes? Do you remember people used yeah. to patent genes all the time? And yep. personally, you know, I was, I was too young to, 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 I did look into that, but how could you patent? You know, the thing is, how could you patent something that's inside your body? It's there. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, if we, if there's a way that we can try to, you know, capitalize on something that it's to today's, today's society seems to know, you know, the worth of everything and the value of nothing, you know, uh, how much, how much something costs seems to be the, the only, the only thing that, you know, anybody cares about when, you know, there's intrinsic value, you know, uh, in, in things. Um, but it seems to only be, you know, it's utility in the marketplace that, that people are concerned about, you know, and it's like, you know, well, this thing is beautiful. Yeah. But you know, how much does it cost or what does it do? It, it, it does beauty. That's what it does. You know, it costs whatever people are willing to pay for it. It's utility and, and it's marketplace value are, are separate and distinct from its intrinsic worth and value. Like the intrinsic worth is different than the market value or the other thing. So anyway, I, 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 I digress, but the one, the one side of things is I'll come at it from a concept of something I want to make fun of, you know, gerrymandering or Congress or, mm -hmm. you know, blockchain or something. The other thing is weirder and I, I don't know if this is more or less common. I, I get the impression that's probably more common with, with a lot of artists, but um, I'll just, I'll just have an idea visually that I think would be interesting. One, one of the, one of the examples is I was, I was, I have a fish tank and, uh, and I have some pretty big fish, you know, good uh, 12 to 18 inches. And I was watching, and this is weird. I realized that not everybody does this, but I like just, figuring out how stuff works. Right. And so I was watching this fish eat and it was really interesting the way that it's, it's jaw hinged. And, and there's like this little flap of skin that's in front of the hinge that kind of webs out. And, uh, and so I was watching it and I thought, what if that just continued to rotate? It didn't stop. What if it continued to rotate in this, in the skin, just, com just completely peeled off mouth first to reveal the skeleton on the inside. So there wasn't like a message or a point to that animation, but once I had that image in my mind, I had, I had to do it. And so I have, I have one where there's this fish and, uh, and the fish just kind of like, you know, kind of bites a few things and then opens its mouth and it's, it's jaw kind of just peels off to reveal the skeleton. And then the skeleton opens its mouth and a wasp flies out, slams into a wall. And that was the end of the animation. So there's no, it's just a weird thing, but it was just something in my head where I was like, I've, I've got to, I've got to make that happen because I just thought it would be really an interesting challenge to try to figure out the mechanics of that fish and then, and then break up. It's a show. It's a show where you have sometimes, you know, we respond to things visually and sometimes the visual thing is the, the art itself, you know, yeah, including, you know, animation, something visual moving. It doesn't have to be a statement that you can turn into words. It can right. just be, you know, getting you to think about something, seeing something, seeing your point of view of something. Yeah. Yeah, I actually think it's, 
there's something about the fine art world that I find a little pretentious when they try to explain in these big university words um, the meaning of everything. And, and sometimes you just made something because you wanted to make it and you don't need to analyze it. You know, I'm sure somebody could go in and talk about, you know, the exposure of the inner self or something with that fish skeleton thing. But uh, but in re reality, it was something weird that I wanted to make and I made it. You know what I mean? And and I I'm trying to write like an artist bio. There's a store that is picking up some of my stuff and carrying a bunch of my posters and stickers and and, and things like that. And they want me to write an artist bio. And I'm like, I'm so not, you know, a uh a fine art kind of hoity-toity ivory tower person that it's it, it grates on me to try to describe anything and i'm just i just i almost want to write the artist bio by just saying i hate artist bios if you like this stuff buy it if not don't and that's it my name is cory kerr <laughs> you can you can draw an artist bio saying you know so you're showing yourself at age 10 20 25 yeah. 30 35 and just um Yeah, it would you, just be me. It would just be me getting wider. That's, there you go. <laughs> yeah. You so. join. Yeah. Good. And what other things, what kind of things do you plan for the future? How do you see the future? I'm, I'm working on something really interesting right now. I've never done something like this. So I'm on sabbatical um, right now. And so I reached out to a number of students and, and former students and graduates. And I said, hey, let's collaborate on a thing. And um, so we're, we're making a short film called Shades. And, uh, and what I'm doing is, and this, I actually, and this is one of those things nobody ever believed me. I wrote this before Zuckerberg made his metaverse announcement. Because oh, yeah. um, I saw where everything was going, right? I mean, Facebook bought Oculus uh, years ago. Um, And they've been pushing it and it hasn't really taken off, you know, in little niches here and there it has, uh, but it hasn't really taken off significantly. And then um, Google Glass happened and everybody freaked out about, you know, I don't want people walking around filming me while I'm at the grocery store. And this is weird. And yeah. it's such an invasion of privacy and it looks strange. It went away. And then Amazon and um Facebook both came out with glasses that basically do what Google Glass did, but they look cool. Uh, Facebooks are made by Ray-Ban uh, and uh, Ray-Ban. And so Ray-Ban comes out with Ray-Ban stories. They don't even call it Facebook Ray-Ban stories, even though it's definitely, you know, in collaboration with Facebook, they're trying to distance themselves from the technology of it where it sees and hears everything that you see in here. So I'm looking at all this stuff happen over the last few years And I'm like, we are heading towards, you know, the dystopian futures that everybody's warned us about. You know, it's either, it's either the Terminator with Boston Dynamics or it's, it's uh, Ready Player One with the metaverse or it's the Matrix with, you know, the, the inevitable AI robot uprising. Um, you know, we're, we're heading towards this singularity where, where humanity is gone. And, and it's, um, I'm, I'm waxing eloquent here, but, but, but I, I, I feel like there are forces at play to try to divest our minds from our bodies. You know, it, our, our view of reality, our perception of reality is through our senses. And so what I see and smell and hear and taste and feel 
uh, is how I think the world is happening. That's how I think reality is happening. And so if I allow governments or technology to replace those senses, I'm literally opting into volunteering my perception of reality to be created by somebody else. So anyway, so my story okay. in, in shape. <laughs> I want to say something about that for a second. Because oh, yeah, I ahead. remember reading some reading uh, a bunch of science fiction stories in the uh, in the early 2000s about how basically yes we are going to be in a kind of metaverse or actually it was kind of augmented reality. You put these things on, and you know people appear as their avatars, which at the time was crazy, but now it's very clear that that's what's going to happen. You know yeah. you have avatars and wherever you go. If you can, if you could talk to me as your avatar, you know, not you, but some people, uh, you know, they they would. And if you could see, you know, you'd see Spock walking around here and an orc going there and a gnome, and uh, the world was full of that. And yeah, also years ago there was uh, a book, I forget its name, uh, where basically the police had to. Uh, investigate a robbery that happened inside a game. Mm. Well, you know, digital stuff was stolen, which at the time was crazy. Right. Today, that's that's an actual thing. Digital stuff can be worth millions of dollars, and uh, yeah. it can be stolen. And uh, you know, yeah. So I think we're going we're going towards there. Before we get to uh, you know uh, the Matrix or uh, you know, or the oasis. Uh, yes. Um, you know, we're going to get there, I think. Go, sorry, go ahead. So, so that's, that's actually one of the things that I'm trying to get people to understand is the lie that comes from these companies is that this is inevitable. And that there's nothing you can do about it. It's going to happen. So get on board or get out of the way because it's inevitable. But I don't think it is. You know what I mean? I, I don't think I don't think we're on a fixed path that can't change. Um, you know, I mean, right now we have billionaires that are saying, well, I'm just going to learn. I'm just going to do everything I can so we can colonize Mars because it is inevitable that we're going to destroy this planet. That is a very fatalistic and awful view to have because there are still things that we could do to not destroy the Earth. And we should actively do those things we shouldn't just say oh yeah that's a foregone conclusion i think it's the same thing with you know this this digital humanity um, and total loss of physical reality uh it feels inevitable because that is that is what the tech companies companies want us to believe is that there's nothing that we can do to retain our humanity we're all going to be transhuman cyborg digital avatars at some point and so just give in and I, and I think that's a really dangerous mentality to have because it is a possible future. But if enough people don't want it and are aware that it's happening, it won't happen. They, they have to have us choose to adopt the progress that they're trying to push on us for it to work. And if, it, if we don't do that, um, or if we limit it, or if we regulate it, or if we are you know, um, you know, if, if I use it, if I use it like ice cream, um, you know, I, I don't, I love ice cream, but I don't eat ice cream five meals a day. Right. Um, 
And if so, if there's a balance in our lives, then it'll be fine. But what they want us to believe is that there is nothing that you can do. You are powerless. This is going to happen. This is just the natural progression of, of what's going on. And um, at least for myself, I refuse to believe that because it is a weak and powerless position to be in. And I feel like as individuals, we have power and, and the power to act and the power to choose and the power to, to do these things either collectively or individually is really important. And if, if it's inevitable that I'm going to become a battery in the machine, um, you know, or, or a consumer of the content beyond my control, um, I don't know why we're still here. I don't know why humans need to exist. We're just ants at that point. There's no sentient consciousness if if we just if it's fatalistic and we're just going about you know we're just we're just playing the part that was fated for us uh then why why get out of bed in the morning so so i i don't mean to kick back real hard but i have a, I have a real it's a it's a big trigger for me is is because i've said it too oh there's nothing we can do about this you know but it, but there is and we should because it's a big deal because our grandkids are going to be are going to be NFTs if, if we're not careful. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah. So the story that I the story that I'm working on right now is is a woman who is is a widow, and um, she used to have a book club, but nobody reads anymore, and and everybody has adopted Shades, which is the the name of the film, which is basically an augmented reality system where you put on these glasses and it overlays. Um, images over the top of what you're seeing and, and hearing. And so she's talking to her daughter uh, who's telling her, don't do it, you know? And she's like, listen, you moved out, you're at college, I'm lonely, you know? She's like, what about your book club? Well, my book club doesn't exist. Nobody reads anymore. We haven't, we haven't met for years, you know? And and uh, I want to meet people. And they're saying that this is how you meet people. This is how you have connection nowadays. And so she gets she gets her shades and she puts them on and she walks out that's all live action. And as soon as she puts her shades on, everything that she sees is animated. And I'm trying to make it so that she flips through all of these different things. And so she sees a kid riding on one of those little spring toys at the, at the park. And it flips through him being a barbarian, riding a giant lizard, being a, you know, an astronaut on a rocket ship, a biker on a motorcycle. Um, and so she, she sees all this stuff. And at first it seems really neat, but then it becomes very overwhelming. And, uh, and I won't give away the ending, but the ending is pretty good, I think. So, so people should watch it when it comes out. But that's what I'm working on right now. And uh, and then after that, I'll probably take a break and just make a bunch of. Uh, when when I take a break, I I try to do like an illustration a day for 30 days or something, and just kind of cleanse the palette. Little easy, fun projects rather than these big, you know, mm. three or four month long projects. So. Nice, good. Is there anything uh, you wanted to say that we didn't cover? uh no no this has been great i don't know i mean there's hundreds of hours of me talking on youtube so <laughs> which brings me to my next question where can people find you yeah if you go to coreykerr.com uh c-o-r-y-k-e-r-r.com you'll you'll see you'll see all the stuff and if you're interested in following me on um instagram or behance or vimeo or youtube or twitter i'm, I'm on all of those things um very active on youtube um, and, uh, and the rest of my stuff is there, but, um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of, that's where everything is. I, I just released a new shirt. Um, if anybody's interested in, 
freedom of speech and freedom of freedom to protest and stuff. I've, I've got a first amendment shirt. I was looking for a, a patch for my motorcycle jacket and the first amendment. Cause I really like freedoms and, uh, and, and uh, it's apolitical. All the, all the liberals think that I'm talking about uh, the right to protest and assemble and all the conservatives think I'm talking about the right to say whatever you want without consequence. And uh, you know, and what I'm really talking about is, you know, hey, this is cool that we still get to have journalists, you know, without having them have black bags thrown over their head and disappear into vans as they, you know, say something that the government didn't like. Um, but anyway, there's there's a shirt that you can get on CoreyKerr.com if you, if you go there. Thank you so much to Corey Kerr. I love talking to him every time. It surprises me that each person, you know, I know it in my heart. Every person has a completely different story. And each time I love hearing and I'm surprised by the fact that there's a completely different story. So that's part of the charm for me. I'll uh, forget them in pals. Now, what did you think about this episode? Email me at guy.hasson, that's H-A-S-O-N, at geekdominpals.com. To find Corey, check out the show notes where you can find his links. Now, next time, because there's always a next time, we go to China, where we find a personal story as well as discover the world of authors in China. So stick around for that. Geekdom in Pals comes out on Tuesdays and Thursdays. The website is geekdominpals.com. Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. We're at Geekdom in Pals, and we're also called Geekdom in Pals on YouTube. If you want to check out my other podcast, The Squash Buckler Diaries, it is a huge experiment in epic fantasy that's not like anything you've ever seen. So whatever you imagine when you hear that, it's not like that. So feel free to check it out. The Squash Buckler Diaries. I will see you next time, and for now, have an empowered day.